You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Welcome to a new edition of Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast, where we discuss all things heavy metal, sometimes dabble in combat sports, and me being a chef and all, we sometimes have some food talk, which is perfect, actually, for our guest today, um, lead guitarist and founder of the band Lost Becomes, but also a very, very talented chef, uh, not your typical chef, which we're going to get into in a little bit, uh, and my good, good friend, uh, Brian Sout. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, I'm so used to calling you chef, but uh, I, I am honored to be here uh, to be doing this with you. Blacklight's been making lots of moves, and it's really cool what you guys have been doing, man. Props to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, when we're excited about you know all the bands, obviously. Gozu's working on a new record, but we're also just super excited about some of the new bands that have joined the label, like Nicholas Cage Fighter from Australia, which is an amazing band. And if you haven't heard them, you should check them out. But anyway, this episode's about you, not necessarily about Blacklight Media. Um, you and I go way back. We actually worked together for a couple of years. I assume that you and Matt knew each other just from like Vitus and, and stuff. But now I'm, I just was just right before we went on here, I, I realized you guys have only met once or twice. Well, you know what? I, I'm pretty sure him and I have had a beer and a shot and a conversation. And I blacked out shortly after that or something to that <laughs> to that effect. Because uh, that was with I, me. That was with me. Because <laughs> <laughs> that tends to happen uh, to me quite a quite a bit, where people go, you know, we've met, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I get that too. This is what I've been experiencing with the pandemic. Is I feel like I go, especially to Greenpoint, like by St. Vitus Bar, and I'll see someone else wearing a mask, and we sort of like make eye contact, like we used to nod at each other every every three days for five years. <laughs> <laughs> and then the pandemic <laughs> happens. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so much to cover in 35 or 40 minutes. First of all, I want to congratulate you on your new band, Lost Becomes. You know, I wasn't prepared for it because while I know you're a guitar player and we've been friends for a long time, I really only saw you perform once at Pink's. Mm -hmm. We basically did a bunch of cover songs. Yeah. And while you were shredding on the guitar, it just didn't prepare me at all for this Lost Becomes project. So... I guess the first thing I want to talk about, I mean, there's a lot to cover with you, uh, how you're balancing chef life and, and band life. And, and just I want to know about this, not your typical chef and how that came to be. And I have so many questions, but mm -hmm. let's, I guess, start at the beginning or start at the end. Um, sure. You've got a new band called Lost mm -hmm. Becomes. You've uh, got a bunch of singles that you've put out, got a few videos that are great, super high quality. 
Um, you've got some real deal management with our friends, Vaughn and Kenny, right? That you're working with them, right? Right. And to full, full disclosure to our listeners out there, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're having little chats about maybe working together in the future. This seemed to come together really quickly, but maybe it didn't. Maybe you were working on it quietly and I didn't know. Tell me about it. You hit the nail on the head. I have been working on this very quietly. Uh, Lost Becomes was a band for two years before we put the first single together. And we really weren't in a rush to play shows or to put music out because we we're all you know, kind of veterans in our, in our, in, in a sense, you know, all the other members have had bands in the past, have toured in the past, have been on labels. So everyone kind of knows the deal. And we were confident in our own abilities to um, put out a quality product without kind of that normal lead up in a local act where, you know, okay, we wrote a few songs, let's try to get an opening slot for whoever's playing at the local venue. We wanted to make sure that, the first thing we put out, like just slapped you across the face and um, you had to pay attention to us. You know, it was really, it, it was a conscious, conscious effort to uh, put quality over quantity, so to speak. Um, so yeah, we were writing and working together for two plus years before the first single even came out. So tell me about how the band itself came together. Like what are the relationships? How, you know, how'd you guys come to be? So, Chris, you and I have met through this amazing New York metal scene, and that's more or less how I met everyone else in the band was uh, that same way. I just started going to shows. Um, I started catering bands when they would come into town. That was really my way of giving back to this community because for 15 years, well, maybe 10 years at that time prior I was just a hermit, work, you know, working in the kitchen ridiculously long hours, six to seven days a week for so long. So I started treating myself by fully immersing myself in the local metal scene. And I met Alec Kosoff. He's the drummer of Lost Becomes. He's also the drummer of Wings Denied. Uh, he was just someone I got along with really well. And I'd known him for years before I asked him to jam. And same thing with Will Gomez. He's the bassist of uh, Lost Becomes. He he was the bassist in Tiger Flowers. Um, you know, Tiger Flowers is a you know pretty established band in the local New York metal scene. And same thing. He's someone I knew for years before I even asked him to jam. So for me, uh, it was really important to first find the people I have chemistry with because I've had so many bands in the past, including the one that you saw me perform with in Pinks. And that was kind of like my dad rock weekend warrior thing. You know, I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to get the musical bug out, but I always knew that that wasn't the, the creative outlet that I wanted. Um, you know, it's same thing in the kitchen, actually, you know, not not to make kitchen analogies, but I totally am. You know, this is the show to do that. This is definitely the show. Yeah. To make kitchen analogy. It's so important to have that chemistry, right, with your sous chef, with your line cooks and have that synergy. And sometimes you don't necessarily get along, but you have this like great respect for each other and know what you're going to get out of one another. You end up creating something even better than you would have if you didn't work together. Perfect example are like the tasting procedures when I was working at Beauty in Essex. You know, it it was the it was it was like the most immersive dish creation experience of my career where 
I would taste it along with my sous chefs. I would taste it along with the exec chef, who is uh, Chef Sarah Nelson, who I love dearly. And then, you know, most of the time you would be at those tastings and, you know, Jen Rucker. And by the way, we, we're, we're, we're recording this on April 14th. It will air a little bit later, but uh, Beauty and Essex just reopened tonight. Yes. So yeah. while they're in the middle of, a, of, of a, probably a pretty stressful reopening, I'm chatting with you. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who wins in that situation, but I think maybe I do. I, I- but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was very important for me to find people that I have chemistry with. And um, I just noticed that I was very relaxed around Alec and, and Will. And that was kind of the first thing to make me want to just jam with them. And when we jammed, I think the first two or three jams, Will told us uh, later on, he he almost quit. He just said that it was the the most terrible sounding stuff that he had ever heard. And it was super dad rocky because he let me take too much control of the riffs. <laughs> and uh, I just remember one day he kind of put his foot down and he said, Brian, I mean, this is the joke we say in the band all the time. He would look at me square in the eyes and it would be like, Mm-mm, make it uglier. Make it uglier, Brian. Make it uglier, Sal. And that really caused me to write differently. And, um, you know, Alec is the real technical one. He comes from a prog metal, you know, gent background. So he's always thinking of like uh, cool different fills, but also different song structures and kind of like uh, pushing us to think differently, uh, you know, trying to put in little twists and turns. And I'm always the one that's like, you know, let's you know, whatever happened to the 4-4, you know, caveman hate breed riffs. So it really came together nicely. And um, we all complimented uh, each other a lot. And we managed to stay together as a band for two years uh, before we put anything out. And that's just because we got along so well. Um, and it wasn't until uh, we actually had to fire our first singer um, a week or two before going into the studio. So that was extremely stressful, but we decided to march forward. Can you get into why you had to fire him or is it, if it's okay if, if you can't? I'm going to just say it didn't work out. You know, I think some personality yeah. clashes and lifestyle, let's just say, you know, big lifestyle differences, you know, Fair I'll enough. keep, yeah, yeah, I'll keep, keep it at that. I'm sorry. What's your singer's name again? Anthony Capozzi. Right. So how'd you find him? I found him through the guys at, uh, in Moontooth. So Moontooth uh, is a, you know, Long Island, they're based on Long Island, good friends of mine. And uh, Big Vin was the one that came to me and said, hey, I actually think I may know somebody. And it was Anthony Capozzi of a band called Thracian on Long Island. And uh, we heard his demos and right away, Will and I and Alec were all like, that's the guy. Like we we have to, <laughs> well, let's first see if he's a dick first. If he's a dick, then we don't want him. But as lo- <laughs> like the main criteria was make sure he's not a dick. Kind of like when I hired you, kind of like when I hired you to be a chef. <laughs> like, let's figure out if this guy's a dick yeah, first. Yeah. You know? This guy's yeah. not a dick, so let's hire him. Yeah, that's fine. He'll figure out the job uh, along the way. <laughs> By the way, for everybody listening out there, you know, I'm, I'm on Food Network and a lot of people really want to work for me. And Brian actually turned me down. <laughs> Like once, if not at least once, if not twice, you turned me down until you finally I I wore you down. I was so scared of that job when you first approached me with it. Here I am, this you know, this chef. The max covers I've ever done was two hundred covers on a Friday, and I granted a much smaller team, but um, it, you know, Beauty and Essex, ten thousand square feet, two hundred fifty seats. I mean, that was a, a big jump up. But uh, once I saw the operation, I was like, you know what? I'd, I'd be stupid 
if I didn't take the opportunity, if, if someone's willing to teach me and I, and I hopped onto it. And you crushed it. You did a great job. So I appreciate it. Thanks that. man. Appreciate but anyway, let's get back to the band. I have so many, I, I have, I have notes here, so many things, and that's not even allowing for Matt to, to throw his questions at you. Two weeks before you're about to go into the studio, you meet the guy and, and what's the next step? How do you guys gel? Well, you know, we finished tracking the instrumentals and during that time we were looking for a vocalist uh, and COVID happened. So we got really lucky that we managed to track all the instruments before the lockdowns happened. So that kind of gave us an opportunity to get to know Anthony a little more via, you know, chatting and phone calls and things like that. And maybe one or two months into the lockdown when, you know, it was super tight and super scary, testing started to become a little bit more available. So we just had this policy of, okay, let's all go get tested. Um, Will, the bassist, is a radiologist, so he has to get tested regularly at work. So that wasn't an issue for him. But we all got tested and we made sure to stay, you know, stay in. And we met in the height of the pandemic. And, um, you know, this is my little man cave in my house that I moved into like a year and a half ago. But right there to my right is my rehearsal room that I set up a a soundproof rehearsal room. And um, we had him come in and we jammed with him. Uh, He came in prepared with lyrics for one song, which was we tried out a couple people. And that's a lot more than we can say for some other people who came to try out. And uh, it just worked. He was awkward as fuck. Definitely, but <laughs> he wasn't a dick, so we hired him. <laughs> I, I was curious about that. I was curious if, since you were about to go in the studio with another singer, if the lyrics were already written and he had to he had to sing those lyrics, or if he wrote his own lyrics. No, he wrote all fresh lyrics. I think he wrote the lyrics and got everything done in like two months. It was insane, um, and he was recording after work. Also, with just, you know, being super strict on himself and Westfall Studios, you know, bless their hearts. They were really strict about um, their cleaning procedures and all that stuff. So he was able to go in after work and he would, you know, just put in his AirPods and listen to the songs all day and jot lyrics and, you know, maybe three months, but no, no more than that. He was he was done pretty quickly from A to Z. And keep in mind, when he started at point A, that was more or less the first time he ever heard the songs. So how long, you know, you just posted a photo the other day um, with a lot with a lot of inspirational um, messaging in your Instagram post. It was a picture of you with a guitar on. Uh, you were much heavier. And uh, when did you start? When did you pick up a guitar? Uh, I picked up the guitar when I was 13, going on 14, uh, around that age, um, you know, told towards the tail end of middle school, something like that. Uh, and I picked it up because Olymp Biscuit was the thing back then. Like that, you know, new metal was the thing. To, I know you're, you're chuckling. And well, <laughs> well, meanwhile, I'm wearing a rat shirt. So like, like <laughs> round and round is a banger. Chris. You know, you're good. But, you know, before that, I was listening like the, the heaviest thing I was listening to before that was Marilyn Manson. You know, it's just basically anything on MTV, Green Day and 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 uh but I finally wanted to play the guitar because some friends from school were really into new metal and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. One of my friends had a guitar and I was just kind of enamored by it, thought it was the coolest thing. But uh, I originally wanted to play bass because I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers so much. Uh, and my my uh, half brother, you know, my, my brother basically, Kevin, shout out to Kevin. Actually, oh shit, that's the my first instrument ever. 
and he gave me that. It's a piece of shit. That's why it's hanging on the wall, and that's why I'm not playing it. But he that was <laughs> that was my first instrument, and I just loved it. I just was totally enamored by it and couldn't let it go. Uh, I went to get lessons, and the guy asked me a few questions, and he was like, it sounds like you want to play guitar and not bass. And I'm like, sure, okay. And I worked an entire summer at my dad's uh, repair shop in Brooklyn, which is now the entrance of um, the Barclays Center. Um, but this was a long time ago before the Barclays Center was uh, erected. And uh, yeah, I worked an entire summer and bought my first guitar, my first amplifier. And th and I remember that's when I started getting into heavier stuff like Slayer, Metallica, and Pantera. I mean, Metallica and Pantera were on constant rotation in my room. I mean, I, I had this Metallica tablature book that I basically wore it out. I mean, all the pages were falling out by the time I was done with it. I was just so obsessed with Kirk Hammett's playing. Uh, but yeah, that's how I got into the instrument. And the rest is history. You know, I mean, I dived into it even deeper because when I was 15 years old, my parents sent me to an exchange program in Beijing, China, uh, and I had no friends, no relatives. So it kind of made me stay at home and woodshed even more. What was the first song you learned to play? First song I learned to play was shit. I'm trying to remember. I think it was uh Corn Blind. No 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 no. Yeah, super, super easy riff. And I didn't have the seven string guitar, I just had to play it. You know, it sounded cool enough on a six string too. So you're still working as a chef though, right? You're opening a sandwich shop or something? Yes, I am. I am. So um, I was working at a place in the Hamptons on Long Island, that you know project. You were there? Yeah, yeah, you were there. It didn't work out, unfortunately, but one, uh, one chapter closing opens another one. And it ended up being the best thing that could have happened for me because I started consulting, not because I wanted to, but out of desperation because it was the first set of work that I got. You know, I, I started getting jobs before my official end date in the Hamptons. People heard that I was a free agent. They wanted me to help them out with some various projects. My now investors who originally were clients just wanted to open a sandwich shop. Uh, they they sought me out, and uh, now we're looking to open something in Brooklyn. Hopefully, by the end of this summer, we did hit a little snag with the location that we're looking at, unfortunately. But uh, I I also had a backup plan of a few other backup locations in case it fell through. So um, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a ghost kitchen, pickup window, gourmet sandwich shop in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So, and then you have a small child. Yes, I have a five-year-old daughter turning six in August. So how do you balance it all? Because I, I know that you have, we, we talked about this on the phone a couple of weeks ago. You know, we, we were talking about the band and what your aspirations were for the band. And, and you expressed that, you know, this isn't just a, a local project. You want to see this thing get as big as it can become. Yes. How do you balance being a dad of a five-year-old, you know, working as a chef in whatever capacity, in mm -hmm. whatever type of store, and then also move the band along. But what's the secret sauce? Honestly, there is no secret sauce. You have to be willing to make certain sacrifices and you have to be, and you also have to have that support mechanism behind you because if you're going away doing all kinds of projects uh, and you know, the things at home are falling apart, that does you no good too. You know, you're, you're taking two steps forward and four steps back or whatever the term is. So I'm very lucky in that I have an extremely supportive wife, but it was kind of built in because when she married me, I was opening my first restaurant. She was already used to me being gone seven days a week, 14 hours a day. 
In fact, when the pandemic happened, we wanted to kill each other because she wasn't used to having me at home. Like one of the first things she complained about was like, I can't buy fucking toilet paper and you're here and your big ass is using all the toilet paper even faster than I'm used to. <laughs> you know, like like little things like that. Well, it's funny because I'm, you know, I moved to LA recently and um, my wife and I actually, we've been doing great during the pandemic. I call her my wife. We didn't get married because of the pandemic, but she's essentially my wife. But we're doing great. We're stronger than ever in a way. The pandemic's brought us even closer. However, having said that, I'm flying to New York this weekend for three weeks. Um, and we're both kind of like, okay, <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> like, see you in three weeks. Yeah. Like, yeah. She's definitely like, yeah, no. Oh, you want to go to New York for three weeks? Please make it four. It's cool. <laughs> so my wife can't wait to get me out of the house. I mean, she's not, she, you know, we, we had a heart to heart and we're, we're great now. We, you know, much like you were saying, you know, we're closer now than ever, but uh, you know, there was certainly a moment where it was just simply, I'm not used to having you here. <laughs> I'm not used to having you so much here. Um, now, on the days that I am off, I give to my family wholeheartedly. Um, so, you know, I take my daughter to the park. I, you know, make sure I'm the one giving her a bath and, you know, making sure, you know, to put her to bed and things like that. So my wife can have some, you know, uh, some of her own time by herself. But that's, I, there is no secret sauce. It's it's sacrifices, man. So what, ha what happens if a label, Blacklight Media, ha <laughs> ha, or other. What if a label comes in and swoops you, you know, you know, signs you, and then all of a sudden you get a, a great booking agent, and all of a sudden you have a four month tour in your hands, and you have to leave the the the, the baby and the wife and the and the sandwich shop behind? Is that something you're prepared to do? Yeah, because uh, it's not something I haven't done before to some degree, or my wife, vice versa. Um, it's not unusual for my wife to go back to Malaysia with the kid for like two months during Chinese New Year. You know, so we're we spend time apart. And we're also very lucky that we have a lot of our family here as a support mechanism. Um, not not everyone has that, you know, so in and you know, my wife has a big family, she has her sisters. Um, you know, my parents love to see my daughter whenever they possibly can. So, you know, they're not they're not left alone, so to speak. You know, there have been many times where I've, you know, had to step away from home uh, for work or a project or anything, you know. And again, I also have a supportive wife who believes in what I do. Um, and I wouldn't do anything unless I was absolutely sure I could be successful at it, even though there's a struggle. Because any project, especially ones you're building up from the ground up, there's going to be rough times. But I've been through damn near two bankruptcies. You know, I've had a failed restaurant. You know, I say to my wife all the time, you know, like life gets 1% better every year for us. And it's at a much slower rate than we would like. But we definitely make sure things progress that 1% every year, even if it's just 1%. That's a really important marker for us. That's a great attitude to have. So you came out of the Long Island hardcore scene, right? <laughs> it's funny. I don't know what scene I came out of because I, I wasn't, I didn't grow up like my formative years. I yeah, didn't grow up here. Yeah. You were in Beijing. Yes. So when I was 13 going 14 or 14 going 15, something like that. I'm 36 now. So, you know, 20 years ago, let's say. I moved to Beijing, China. So I got into this whole new metal thing. Right before I left the States, I got into, you know, things like Thrash and Pantera and stuff like that. I went to China 
And for a few years, I just had the records I had. I didn't know where to go buy. I didn't know where the music stores were, essentially. And it wasn't easy in Beijing at that point. No, no. And it ended up turning becoming very easy a little later yeah. because I eventually discovered the scene in China. But the scene in China was very... Very international. So I was listening to things like Mr. Big, which is, you know, a super yeah. hair metal. Billy Sheehan. Yeah. Billy Sheehan, Paul Gilbert were my fucking heroes. Billy Sheehan is the best bass player I've ever, I think I've ever heard. Yeah. Hands down. Easily. So, you know, that was one of my favorite bands, a Japanese band called X Japan. I was listening to like Vader from Poland, you know, a little bit of Emperor, a little bit of Dimu Boger, stuff like that. And I really didn't know what was going on in the States anymore for quite some time. So when I returned to the States, I didn't I, I started my culinary career. I, I didn't have a scene. So I don't know what scene I come from. Well, I guess okay, so I guess a better question is like because Lost Becomes kind of has this hardcore sound. Mm -hmm. Like there's a very clear like terrorizer influence. Yes. You know, where did that come from? So <laughs> I actually had a similar discussion with Jose, who uh, filmed and directed and edited our music video the, for memory. And this next one, by now, when this comes out, that the video for moments would have come out already. But he was asking, like, you, you're really into hardcore, aren't you? And I'm like, I'm not sure. <laughs> and I realized later on, you know, I'm immensely influenced by that second wave of hardcore, you know, in the metalcore bands, especially, you know, with and the new wave of, of American heavy metal, you know, they're immensely influenced by the hardcore scene, the OG hardcore scene. But the hardcore elements were the things that I was most drawn to from this second wave of hardcore. So I've only recently, maybe in this past year and a half, more or less dived backwards and started to realize like, oh, shit, I, I guess I am a hardcore dude. I, I just, I had no clue. You know, to me, everything was metal. But for, you know, hardcore specifically, you know, I, I would definitely point to Hatebreed most of all. Like they're one of my all-time favorite bands because of that, just that fucking chunky, chugging, groovy sound. That That's just all I want to do with the guitar. I can, I can shred. I can play some leads and I love playing leads, but I just love the riffs, man. That And Dimebag Daryl, you know, I just, I love the riffs and the grooves and that's all I want to live in. So when I started Lost Becomes, I specifically said, you know, I, I just want to chug and everything I play, I want it to be very easy so I can just chug harder. God bless Rita Haney, Dimebag's widower. She presented me with one of his guitars that's hanging now in the pawn shop at Beauty and Essex LA. Wow. One of the greatest gifts I've ever gotten. Yeah. Holy cow. So, you know, I don't know if there's a connection here, but, you know, I, I know that you are very involved with uh, Hope for the Day, mm -hmm. which is an anti-suicide um, prevention uh, organization that I'm going to be working with. Uh, we're doing a Jill Janis memorial project uh, with with Metal Blade, uh, Jill Janis was the singer of Huntress who took her life tragically. And we are working on this very ambitious project that I won't get into right now, but hope for the day is gonna get all the proceeds um, that we're working on. And I'm just wondering, knowing how much you work with that organization, and is there a connection between that whole cause and the name of, of your band? Yes. You know, the name of the band, we, we very intentionally named it Loss Becomes because what's everyone's relationship with loss? And then what does that manifest into? 
So you'll notice every uh, for for this record, you know, we recorded a record's worth of material and we're releasing them all as singles. But you'll notice they're all one word, you know. So the first song was Lost Becomes Focus. Second song was Lost Becomes Promises. Third song, Lost Becomes Memory. And this song, which will be out by now, Lost Becomes Moments. This is actually the most mental health awareness forward where we've ever been up till now because loss is a real powerful thing. It can focus you. It can break you. No matter what happens to you through loss, it has a significant and profound effect on every human being. And it's also completely different. So it's something that we felt people can understand, but we also felt it was a message that we could put across with just the name alone. It's funny. I did not, I did not even make the connection between the song titles and that whole relationship. Yeah. I, I didn't even know that just now. So for moments, the song that's out now, or that's going to be out now, that music video actually depicts my first suicide attempt. We don't put it at the forefront, but that's the narrative throughout the video. And for me, that particular song, I didn't write the lyrics or anything, but when I read the lyrics and when I was putting the campaign together, I just, it was very important to me that we start, you know, speaking about topics that need more light upon it, you know? So yeah, for, for loss becomes, yes, it does very much so has a meaning and it's supposed to mean different things for everybody. Um, in relation to what loss means to you. How did the how did the new vocalist, you know, you brought in, I assume you kind of had the idea behind the band mm -hmm. when you hired him. How did he respond to kind of being presented with that? You know, I'm tr really trying to think back to the moment we told him that. I know it was very inspirational for him, but we also didn't give him that mission to say, write the lyrics based on loss becomes this. Like we still wanted him to write from the heart. And then we as a band would look to, through it collectively and kind of figure out, okay, what's a word that, you know, can kind of encapsulate the meaning of this song. So we didn't give him a specific mission to make sure he writes along those uh, that way. But I think that's just a testament of how much he fits in with us and the mission of the band, because it worked out like, you know, there was a theme that was that ran through all the tracks. And I think that came through a sense of urgency for how quickly he had to write everything. Let's talk about a different kind of loss, a little bit more upbeat kind of loss, weight loss. <laughs> you used to be much, much heavier. Whenever you post a photo, I'm always shocked. Um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a chef, you know, I became a chef. You know, people, I think, assume that chefs are um, there. They become a chef because they are so passionate about cooking. And while that is definitely true, I think that um, you can equally make the case, and certainly in my case, you know, that I became a, a chef because of my love affair with food mm -hmm. and not, not as much cooking. Mm -hmm. I love to cook, but I love fucking mm -hmm. food. You know what <laughs> I mean? And I love learning about food and I love, I love learning new dishes and new techniques, but the cooking part of it is like kind of the, you know, the job requirement and, and the, the eating part of it and the being in love with food part of it is, is what comes natural. Right. I think that, you know, I, I make this joke, it's not really funny, but, but I make the joke of like, you know, if you, if you have, you know, a substance abuse issue or an alcohol issue, you go to rehab. But if you have, you know, if you're obsessed with food, you can have a promising career as a chef. <laughs> so I've, you know, I've gained some weight over the course of, you know, I'm 50 now. I was, I was pretty, I was pretty thin uh, up until my late thirties. And then the last 10 years, I've been kind of been bouncing up and down um, literally by, you know, 
I, I was as high as 250 pounds, which is terrible. Uh, but then I lost 30 pounds and people magazine wrote about it, which is weird because now you have that pressure of, you know, people magazine wrote about it and then you gain 10 pounds again. You know what I mean? I work really hard to kind of be in a mediocre place weight wise, but you lost a tremendous amount of weight and you kept it off. How'd you do that? Well, so I will say in the last 10 years for myself as well, I've, you know, I've yo-yoed a lot too. I've never gone back to, you know, the heaviest I've been, which was 360 pounds, which in the photos I post on my social media. Uh, no disrespect, but that's a big, I mean, we're the same height, basically. That's fucking it's big. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's big. Yeah, big. So, I mean, uh, I'm being totally, but I'm not trying to be funny. Yeah. Like, so how did you get there? And then how did you get away from that? And how do you stay away from that? When I was 15 years old, I was 360 pounds. And that was just me eating poorly, having bad eating habits. Um, it was funny. I gained more weight moving to China because the caretaker family I was living with, they're like, what the fuck do we feed this American? Well, I guess McDonald's and KFC every day. So I kid you not, that was literally their logic. And my mom came to visit me and I gained like 40 pounds. And she could not understand why in the land of China, where there's an emphasis on rice and vegetables, this kid could gain more fucking weight. So I gained even more weight. And uh, I, I'm not kidding. And it, it's pretty shallow, but also kind of funny. I started losing weight because I couldn't get a date. <laughs> and I just I just was not confident yeah. in myself. But and I also wasn't happy. You know, I wasn't happy being that that weight. And I one day just something snapped and I started working out. I said, well, I didn't just start working out. I started walking to school, you know, an hour walk, an hour walk there, an hour walk back. I would be drenched in sweat by the time I got to school and drenched in sweat by the time I got home. And then I started jogging and then I got a couple dumbbells and then I started swimming and then I joined the gym. And over the course of four or five years, I went down to about 210 pounds just through sheer force of will. And keep in mind, I was... At that time, at that point, I was like seven, no, 18, 17, 18. So your metabolism is definitely running a lot faster. And I was also eating much healthier too. You know, wasn't eating McDonald's and KFC every single day. But it was a combination of just sheer force of will working out every day and eating better. But that didn't solve a lot of problems that were in here. And this is one of the main reasons why I'm so active in mental health awareness is because I still was the fat kid despite being 210 pounds you know that would mean i'm 50 pounds lighter uh no i'm 250 now so i'm sorry well, well you're 150 down from 360. yeah yeah so i i was you know when i was like 17 18 i was 210 pounds you know so i was at 360 went to 210 pounds but when i looked at myself in the mirror i was still the fat kid i was still not confident in myself dude i get it get it i really get it i have uh what do they call it body dysmorphia dysmorphia yeah whatever I totally have it, man. I really do. And it's funny not to interrupt you, but like, you know, even I can remember being in culinary school. So I was 20, 21 years old and probably 170 pounds and still feeling like I needed to lose weight. Right. And then, you know, as now, like today, like I'm basically about 215, 218, depending on the day. I hate myself. Yeah. I, you know, I want to be under 200 pounds. I, I want to be under 200 pounds, you know? I'm so glad you mentioned that number because for my height, I was told I should be 180 pounds, right? And that was the number I had to achieve. I looked great, objectively looked great, but I didn't, I wasn't happy because I was still 210 pounds. Wow, I'm still really overweight. And if I showed you pictures of myself at 210. Apparently using body mass index or whatever, like I'm clinically obese. Right. 
if you use the, the BMI, like right. whatever. I mean, I know I got a, I know I got a little, a little, I'm, I'm, I got some, I got some handles, <laughs> but I don't think I'm obese. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? But yeah, it's, I totally understand the feeling of looking in the mirror and not be, you know, it's so funny because I live that life every day and I was at the restaurant last night and someone I hadn't seen in a while was like, Oh my God, you look so great. Like how, how much have you lost? And I was in my head, I was thinking, well, I lost 30, but I know I put on a lot, I put 10 or 12 of it back on. So I was trying to do the math. Yeah. The, the question caught me completely off guard because I don't feel comfortable right. in my skin. Right. You know what I mean? right. Amy, Amy Schumer. So Amy Schumer was, a bartender at Stanton Social. I oh, wow. I did not know that. That's insane. That is insane. Yeah, we connect every now and then. She, we used to always talk about music at the bar and stuff together. But um, but she has a joke that says, you know, you know, you know, do you know how many, you, do you know how much I have to work out to look this mediocre? And that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Like, because I do work yeah. out. I go to a boxing gym four days a week. I go hiking once a week. I run two, three miles once a week. And I, and still, I'm like, Fuck, I look so meaty fucking ogre. Like, well, I I say the same thing about myself all the time and I well, you know, I just kind of committed to this dad body, not to say I'm complacent, but I just, you know, to to kind of quickly cap off my story, I was so upset uh, despite being the healthiest of my life, I ended up becoming bulimic and anorexic and I got down to that 180 pounds. I didn't stop until I hit that 180 pounds and I looked like a skeleton, but I now I'm healthy according to the world standards. And I wouldn't really get a grasp on this weight situation until maybe like four or five years ago, where I kind of understood that, listen, a big part of it has to do with genetics. Not everyone's going to be a Conor McGregor. Not everybody's going to be a Usain Bolt. You know, there are just some people who are genetically more predisposed to look a bit more cut than others. And there's nothing you can do about it. You are you are blessed with the body you're blessed with. So whether that means you have a dad bod, but you have a fucking badass chain of restaurants, right? Or, you know, you're, you're, you're cut as hell and you make millions of dollars on Instagram taking topless pics, whatever. It's, you know, I started, I started looking at it as a full deck of cards and, you know, the body part of it is just one of the cards in the poker hand. I recently saw somebody post something somewhere that said, you know, I don't look at it as that I have a dad bod. I look at it as I have a father, I'm a father figure. Mm. Mm. I like that. <laughs> anyway, the last thing I have for you, and then we'll let Matt finish it off is, you know, for as long as I've known you before you worked for me, while you worked for me, uh, since you've worked for me, you know, you have kind of identified yourself as hashtag not your typical mm -hmm. chef. Um, and, you know, that Tell me about that. Like, a, I mean, at the risk of offending a lot of chefs out there, but <laughs> what in your mind is a typical chef? Or uh, if you don't want to go there, which is fine, what makes you not your typical chef? I didn't become a chef because I wanted to cook great food or I wanted to um, wine and dine people or, you know, entertain. I became a chef because it was I'm a stubborn asshole and it was this challenge that I felt like. I was failing at and I just wanted to prove that I can beat you, you know, you prove the chef wrong. I came back to the States around 19, 20 years old. I can't remember exactly, but uh, I came back uh, a broken man. You know, I, I had some substance abuse issues. I had, you know, my, my weight issues with the bulimia and anorexia, and I wanted to get my life back together. I was going to go to John Jay School of Criminal Justice and become a cop. <laughs> 
that's what I wanted to do. I thought that was the straight and narrow. And school wasn't starting for a couple months because it was the summer. I asked my dad, do you know anyone that's hiring? He said, yes, my dad's a mechanic. He knows everybody in Brooklyn. He says, I know a guy. He has a pastry factory in Sunset Park. Why don't you uh, go see if he has a job for you? I went over there, took a dishwashing job, and I just loved the action. I loved the physicality of it. I loved you know, the fast pace, the heat, everything. I just thought it was so mentally and physically engaging, and I just wanted to know more about it. And the more I knew, the, you know, the stupider I felt and the more the world of culinary opened up to, my, to me. So I just became kind of hungry for knowledge, but I kept up with it because I was stubborn. Kind of like, you know, why I kept up with my entire career. Now, of course, I found like a, a fa- I found a love for it. And obviously, I love to cook good food. But the reason why I say, you know, to get back to your original question, the reason why I say I'm not your typical chef is because honestly, I kind of don't give a shit. I don't give a shit what's going on, who, you know, what trends, who's the, who's the latest, greatest chef, or, you know, what's the most popular restaurant. I never did. I just never did. I, maybe I did for a short period of time because that's what was expected of me. But the day I accepted that, like, I'm just this dude who kind of floats through it, who has a passion because he's a stubborn asshole about it. Um, but I just just continue marching my own path. That's what makes me not typical. I think that's what, what, drew, what drew you to me. I'm the same way. I mean, look, I've got a lot of food, net, food network and like, you know, uh, um, high end restaurant friends and I respect them completely um, and love the work that they do. But I've never been like part of the, the boys <laughs> club of chefs. You know? <laughs> like, that's not for me. It's just not for me. I mean, I'll go to your restaurant and I will and I will learn from you and I will totally respect what you do. But like being part of that, like that club or whatever you want to call it. I went from culinary school to being an executive chef in New York City uh, in the span of 18 months. I was an executive chef in 1993 at the age of 23 years old, completely, completely unprepared for the role. Right. And the masters are the masters for a reason. And I'm, there's nothing that I'm saying that is disparaging about it it's, but it's just that i'm not part of the club i'm not part of the thing and, I, and you aren't either and i think that's one of the things that drew drew us together yeah i 100 percent agree that was that was something that was quite evident once i started to get to know you that you know again you weren't part of that boys club and i liked it a lot i i want that's that's where i wanted to be because uh and like i said ever since the day i took up that hashtag not your typical chef it's not because like i look down upon anyone else's career or what anyone else is doing it's just i've been so focused on myself it's i guess it's a very selfish thing in many ways <laughs> i like it it's working for you thank you for opening up about the weight stuff, which is something like I've struggled with and have a hard time talking about. So it's good to, it's good when we get to address those things on the show, I feel. Mm, it's important. Yeah. It's not just talking about death metal. Right. Yeah. But otherwise, knowing that this episode will probably air in July. Mm-hmm. What do you want people to be aware of that's going on in your world? Very cool. So by the time this episode comes out, I will have a new YouTube web series called Sowich Sundays, where it's my mission. Oh. It is my mission to make the biggest, ro- most robust, saucy subs inspired by the most unlikely of places, or in my case, the most unlikely of people. So I am making subs inspired by all your favorite musicians, mostly metal musicians, but I'm also looking looking to reach out to comedians, wrestlers, athletes. Basically, I send out a questionnaire and based on that questionnaire, I 
create a sandwich. And it's all kinds of fun questions from the worst food that you had on a date to your favorite cheat meal to your food quirks. And that's the challenge. That's how I put the sandwich together. It's going to be on my YouTube channel. Uh, it's actually starting in May. So by the time this episode comes out, it'll be in full swing, baby. And uh, I'm hoping through that inspiration, that not your typical inspiration, that I can find something really cool to put on my menu at the sandwich shop. Oh, that's very cool. Here we go. I love that. I love that. That's brilliant. Can you make me a bond me based on my experience with my ex-wives? <laughs> <laughs> I was Maybe. planning to hit you up with this questionnaire, uh, Chris. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to do it about your ex-wives, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely wanted you on this show. I just needed to make sure I got a rhythm going before I started reaching out to more people. Absolutely, absolutely. Brian, so where where can we find you on the inter, on the interwebs? You can find me on the interwebs on every major platform: Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok. I'm struggling a little on TikTok, so if you're listening to this, give yeah. me some love on TikTok. I'm too old for TikTok. I'm struggling on TikTok. You I'll can follow you on TikTok right now. <laughs> I'm actually currently struggling with TikTok and Twitch. I'm uh, trying to create some content for Twitch and I'm trying to just understand TikTok and I and I'm older than you, <laughs> by the way. TikTok is the best, Chris. We're gonna we're gonna get you there. Twitch is hard. I, I gave Twitch a genuine uh, a genuine try. It wasn't for me. That's why I dived into YouTube. Um, but yeah, you can find me on all the platforms at Chef Brian Sow. Brian spelt with an I, Sow spelled T as in Tom S A O. Brian Sow, T is silence. Check me out. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this has been a blast. You know, it's always fun doing these shows. Uh, it was especially fun when it's someone that that I know so well as you, <laughs> but still get to, but still get to learn so much. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. For those who are listening, tune in again next week. We will have another special guest to be announced, and hopefully, we've set a high bar here this week. So hopefully, next week's conversation is as fun and entertaining and educational as our conversation with Brian was today. All right, so that was awesome. Thank you everyone out there for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more, and above all, keep it heavy. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.